Well, good morning, church. It's great to have you here for worship. And uh, good morning. <laughs> about a month ago, at the beginning of Advent, uh, we talked about how Mark, the writer of our gospel this morning, saw in Jesus the answer to the cries of God's people throughout history. And he began his gospel, his account of Jesus' life, by addressing his audience with words that would have been electrifying to them. The good news, the truly good news, he said, is about Jesus. Now, he was writing to a small group of Christians in Rome uh, during the persecution and just after the persecution of Nero, the, that emperor of Rome. And Nero, you remember, was the Caesar who uh, set a fire in Rome and started it burning and then, as legend has it, fiddled while Rome burned. That's the one, that's where we get that terminology, that, that little that little anecdote because he and the thing is he wanted to clear a large part of Rome because he thought his palace was not big enough for him and so he figured if he burned some of Rome down he'd be able to uh, build a larger palace for himself and it would be great but the thing is everybody in Rome figured out that he was the one that set the fire they said you're the one that did it and so Nero immediately started looking for a scapegoat for uh, for their anger and he said it wasn't me it was the Christians Nobody really liked the Christians back then because they didn't worship the Roman gods. And they thought, they're kind of spooky and weird. And so let's blame them. And Nero found a great scapegoat for them. And he had, he had them rounded up and tortured and fed to wild animals. Horrible, horrible things. If you want to read more about it, uh, go, right, go right ahead. It's horrible stuff. You won't be able to eat lunch afterwards because it just turns your stomach. But he could do all this stuff in the, at that time because he was Caesar. He was Caesar. He had ab almost absolute power as ruler of that empire. And nothing in the world rivaled the power of Rome at the time. And back then, here's the thing, back then the word gospel simply meant amazingly good news. That's all it meant. The kind of good news that you, they didn't have gospel music stations or gospel music or anything like that. It just meant amazingly good news. It was a secular word. And it was the kind of good news that you could count on. The kind of good news that thrills the heart. Like maybe you've been at war for many, many years, and the word has come, the war is over. The time of peace has come. That's what gospel meant back then. And in Rome, the good news, the gospel, it was all about Caesar. It was all about the Caesar of Rome. When Augustus Caesar, the first emperor of Rome, was on the throne, poets wrote about him that his birth was the birth of a savior of the world, even the birth of a god, that his birth was gospel, was good news, for the whole world. And this is what makes the beginning of Mark's gospel so powerful. Because Mark is writing his gospel to that ragged group of Christians who have been persecuted and chased down by the powerful ruler of Rome, by Caesar. Mark writes his gospel to that ragged group of persecuted, powerless people. And these are the very first words he writes. He says, the beginning of the good news, not of Caesar, but of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so from the beginning, it's clear that Mark's gospel is, the, is about the clash of kingdoms, about two ways of living life, two ways of understanding the world in which we live. And so as we consider this passage today, this is what I want you to be thinking about. I want you to be thinking about how do you see the world that we're living in? What defines you as a person? Where does your knowledge of yourself come from? How do you measure your own worth? See, for many people, life is not much more than a clamoring for meaning. 
And so much effort is spent trying to convince the world and themselves that they matter, that they have value. That's what Facebook is all about, really. There's a documentary on, uh, done by Frontline called uh, Generation Like. Has anybody seen this documentary, Generation Like? Fantastic. Like I always say, whenever I have an analogy or an image that I want to use and nobody knows what I'm talking about, I feel like I'm doing a good job. Cool. <laughs> anyway, there's this, there's this documentary called Generation Like uh, done by Frontline. And it's about the whole social media thing, except for it's mostly about Facebook. And in one of the scenes, it shows these young people, and they are agonizing because this one young man is about to set up his Facebook page for the first time. And they're agonizing together about what his profile picture should be. And so they're just going through thousands of pictures, kind of taking pictures of him to see if they can make it look right and, and kind of you know, portray the right image to the world. And, and then they agonize after they pick out the profile picture. They agonize about what their status update should be. What if they post something in their status and nobody clicks like? What if they do that? How horrible would that be? And isn't that the right name for it? I mean, status update. Think about that. Status update. Because it really is about status, if you think about it. Because depending on what you type in that little box, your status as a person can go up or down. And if nobody likes what you put in that box, your status as a person begins to evaporate, at least in the Facebook world. And so these people, these young people, they were agonizing about what to say. Will it make me sound cool? They wanted to know, will people like it? And what they're really asking is, will people like me when I put myself out there? And the crazy thing about all of this, when you are on Facebook like that, you are letting other people, think about it, you're letting other people tell you what you're worth, aren't you? You're letting other people uh, determine how cool you feel about yourself. Here's a picture of me at the beach with my friends. Do you like it? Here's what I think about a movie I just saw. Do you like what I have to say? I'm not sure. Here's me at a restaurant in Rosemary Beach. What do you think? Are you jealous? <laughs> and there's this bizarre thing. There's this bizarre thing called Facebook depression. Have you heard of that? Have you felt it, though? <laughs> Maybe you've felt it. Facebook depression is a real thing. Psychologists and psychiatrists are, are seeing people come in, and they are clinically depressed because they've been on Facebook. And it comes about because people on Facebook, they're usually almost always posting the very best things about their life, right? You know, it's not like, oh, well, here's, the, here's a picture of my dirty room I haven't cleaned up yet. Here, what do you think about this? No, I mean, it's just like, here's, here's, here's everything awesome about my life, you know? And, it, and, and you, you're sitting in your pajamas on Facebook, you know, at like 2.30 in the afternoon, and you're feeling miserable about yourself, and you're scrolling through all this stuff, and you're seeing all their lives being amazing, and you're thinking about yourself just like, oh, gosh, compared to everybody else, it seems like I'm just living this humdrum thing, this existence that doesn't really matter. And so faced with that, your sense of satisfaction in life goes down. And some people become clinically depressed over this and have to go see a doctor to get it fixed. The largest study about social media use in Sweden found that heavy Facebook use is associated with lower self-esteem and poor self-worth. And this was especially true for the women in the study. Heavy Facebook use, meaning using Facebook for a little bit more than an hour a day, is associated with lower uh, self-esteem and poor self-worth. What are we doing to ourselves? I mean, it's, it's really bizarre. We're clamoring for meaning, looking for others to affirm us, looking to the world to determine our worth. And it makes us miserable. Today's the beginning 
of the season of Epiphany. And usually the Epiphany season lasts uh, seven weeks or so. It goes all the way to Ash Wednesday. Well, Epiphany always goes to Ash Wednesday, but this, this year it's only about four weeks long. So we only get about four weeks of Epiphany, and then we get to Lent. But Epiphany is about the revealing, the manifestation of Christ to the world. That's what Epiphany means, the manifestation, the revealing of something. And when Mark wanted to tell us about Jesus and reveal him to the world, the first thing he told us is that Jesus reveals a new way of being a human being. In Jesus, we have the clash of kingdoms, and the, and the world thinks that Caesar is the ruler. Caesar the powerful. Caesar the popular. Caesar the, Caesar the most influential. Caesar, Caesar the one with the most likes. And on the other side, you have Jesus. Jesus the humble. Jesus the servant. Jesus the man of the people. Jesus the one who lived for others. Jesus the one who was despised and rejected. <clears throat> by man. Those are the two kingdoms, two ways of life, the way of Caesar and the way of Jesus. Caesar knew his self-worth because he had an empire of people telling him he was amazing at the fear of death. They would tell him he was amazing. And, and as long as his kingdom remained strong, he was great. As long as he didn't become weak, he was great. As long as he didn't lose his influence, he was great. But what would happen if it all came crumbling down? What would his worth be then? But Jesus knew his worth, not because of the world, not because of what the world said about him. His worth came from what God the Father said about him. His worth was rooted in eternity, in things that could not be shaken, in something that could never be taken away. Then we see this clearly in his baptism. I'd like you to take out your bulletins or your Bibles and, and turn to Mark chapter 1. It's on page 5 of your bulletin. And we're going to begin right at the end of the reading, uh, verse 9. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John on the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And just right there, Jesus is given enough Jesus is given enough right there to sustain him all the days of his life. Look what happened as he came up out of the waters. One, he saw a vision of God. Active in the world, he saw the heavens being torn open. He had an experience of the Holy Spirit in his life. The Spirit descended upon him like a dove. He heard the voice of God. He heard the voice of God. A voice came from heaven, and that voice told him who he was. You are my beloved son. And he knew in that moment, at the core of his being, that his father loved him with an eternal love. You are my son, whom I love. And he enjoyed God's deep and abiding pleasure. With you, I am well pleased. Now, can you imagine living your life with that as your foundation? Right? God himself assuring you that you are his. That he doesn't just like you, but he loves you. He doesn't just like what you say, like what you do, like what you post or think, but he loves you eternally. He doesn't just love you, but he is well pleased with you. The thought of you brings him pleasure. What could you face in this life if that was your foundation from which you lived? And to me, it seems like you could handle anything that life threw at you. People reject you, who cares? People don't like what you say on Facebook, who cares? 
Your life isn't as beautiful or as successful or problem-free as the people around you. Who cares? Your worth doesn't come from any of that stuff anyway. It's rooted in the eternal and unchanging God who says that his love for you knows, knows no bounds and his pleasure in you reaches to eternity. If that is your foundation, if others don't like you, it doesn't crush you. If people reject you, it doesn't mean your life has no worth because your worth isn't determined by the fickle people who like or don't like you. And it isn't determined by your successes or failures in life. Later in his ministry, Jesus talks about building your life upon a foundation of rock or a foundation of sand. And he said that a man built his home on the rock and the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because he had built, it had been founded on the rock. But the one who built his house on the sand, the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. And the thing is, in this life, the rains are going to fall and the floods are going to come. And the thing is, I know that all of you know that. I know that all of you have experienced those things. Every person in, in here has gone through hard stuff. But the foundation upon which you build your life makes all the difference. And the thing is, the amazing thing is, this is the amazing thing. To me, this is amazing. I will be clear, this is amazing. The same foundation that formed the foundation for Jesus' life can be your foundation, too. Because the same thing that happened to Jesus in his baptism happens to us in ours. Because we, uh, we are promised that as we are baptized into Christ, God adopts us as his children. And in Christ, we hear him say to us, Daddy, you're my daughter whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Gray, you're my son whom I love. I'm so pleased with you. Barbara and Ted and Nancy and Chip and Patrick and Laura and Rod and Betty, Meredith and Kathy, Shelley, Bill and David and Matthew and Sandra. You're my son. You're my daughter, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And if that is your foundation in life, if that is where your worth comes from, then no matter what happens, you are secure. You can handle anything that life throws at you because you know that God is with you and for you. Jesus knew who he was, and he heard God speak from heaven and call him his beloved son. He knew God's pleasure in him. And for those of us who have been baptized, we can know God's pleasure too. And we know who we are because we know that we belong to him. And for those of us, for those of you who have not yet been baptized, that knowledge and that joy and that peace is what awaits you, is what can be yours when you give yourself to Christ by being baptized. You can build your life on that foundation, the foundation of God's boundless love and pleasure. So, may I encourage you to build your life on that foundation, on the foundation that can never be shaken, God's commitment to you in Jesus, God's pleasure and joy in who you are in Christ. Not on your successes or failures. Those things, can, those things happen. Sometimes your successes are here. Sometimes your failures are here. Not on your influence or your status, but on who you are in Jesus, on who God says you are to him. 
That's the thing that can sustain you throughout your life, just like it sustained Jesus in his life and ministry and death. Do you want that? I mean, wouldn't it be amazing never to worry about what other people think of you? Because in Christ, you know who you are, loved and chosen and pleasing to God. So who cares what everybody else thinks? Who cares what everybody else might say? You know what God says. May you live your life from that foundation. May you know the love of God and his pleasure. May that be the source of your strength in this life. May that be what sustains you. In Jesus' name.